Gospels and you go past Thessalonians, you end up in 1 Timothy. And there in 1 Timothy, last week we completed uh, chapter 2, where um, Paul, writing to this young believer, is uh, laying out what we'll find in chapter 3, verse 15. So if you want to go ahead with me in chapter 3, verse 15, uh, Paul writes there, and really in verse 14, he writes the same thing. He says, These things I am writing to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. He says, But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And so Paul's writing to a young uh, minister. He's writing to a young man, essentially. And uh, in comparison to himself, um, he may have been young, but many believe he was actually in his mid-30s to his 40s. And so in our culture, we would say, um, maybe many of us would not say that that's old anymore, because age is always relative. Um, but to Timothy, um, he feels as though he's a young man, and he's in a church. He's a pastor in the Ephesian church, and he's actually, um, he's actually a leader. And so he's going to talk about this morning, as Paul writes to Timothy, um, the qualifications to be a leader in the church of God. But what I want you to think about while we're reading and, and studying this passage is not just how um, God has laid forth qualifications for leaders in the church, but really anybody who's a Christian um, should have the things that are evidenced here that he lists out. Um, they're really just evidences of the Holy Spirit in the presence or in the, the character of a, a man or woman who is following Jesus. And so in uh, verse 1 through 7 of chapter 2, uh, Paul laid out last time and really a couple times before that, that our attitude towards all people should begin in our prayer life. Um, if you have people in your life that are hard to deal with, um, you're not alone. You're not the only person. We all have people in our lives we really struggle with dealing with. Um, but what he talks about is if you want your attitude towards people to change, you want to love them like Jesus even when you don't feel like it, it begins with our submission to the Lord in prayer. He talks about praying for all men. He includes those who are in authority over us in uh, our government. So if there's any way that I know that I could grow, it's in praying for government leaders. But then he goes on to a passage that is a lot less likely to be easily absorbed by the Christian, which is our conduct as the body of Christ within the fellowship of believers. And he talks about how our conduct as the body of Christ should be in submission to the authority and the order that God has set in place. And last time we talked about how God has called men to lead and how he has raised up leaders that are men who are really in submission to uh, God himself under shepherds. And he says, uh, you know, he had some words to say about not having women lead in the church, which in our culture would be uh, like spitting in someone's face. But his point was made not necessarily by Paul's um, opinion, but he actually quotes from Genesis, and he says, Adam was formed first, and then Eve. And if you just stop there in verse 13 of chapter 2, really what he's stating there is that God created Adam, and out of Adam he created Eve. And really it has nothing to do with worthiness to lead, it has nothing to do with ability it just has to do with God's instruction. 
He created man first to be the forerunner, and he created woman to be a co-laborer with man. And if that order is set in place, really one should lead the other. If both are trying to lead, what happens? Well, in our house growing up, if you had Thanksgiving and you had all the ladies in the, the kitchen at one time, which was never big enough for more than two people, you had them all trying to lead the cooking, what happens is utter chaos. And if the kids come in, it's, it's angry, utter chaos. Because I was like, you know, the oldest of the cousins, and I'd just be wanting to go get something to drink. And be like, get out of the kitchen. It's not time to eat yet. Well, I don't want anything to drink or to, to eat. I wanted something to drink. But they were all in there already fighting each other, trying to cook. And then I got into the mix. And now I just realized that I need to get my drink before that all starts. <laughs> just stay out the kitchen. If you can't stay in the heat, don't go in the kitchen. Um, but that's the, that's the point. In the church of God, there are those that are called to be leaders. And in this case, he's not saying that women are not to lead in any possible way. He's saying as far as the leadership in the church, men are called to do it. He says, nevertheless, uh, the woman will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. So in, in a way, leading the children, and, and the, you know, obviously men and women, the husband and the wife, are to lead the children. But also the wife is many times, even culturally, more engaged with the children. And so she is to raise those children up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord, and uh, be supported by her husband in that role. And so uh, all of this is a husband and a wife really submitting to one another as they have first submitted themselves to the order and the authority of God. And so if we, as married couples, will both focus individually on Jesus, essentially picture it like two points in the woods, if you're lost, we all point towards one destination, Jesus, then eventually we come together right now, you know, with Jesus as the center. And so um, it happens the same way in the church. If we, each one of us, being individual blocks, essentially as God is building the church, it's not a building, it's a group of people, we're all shaped differently. If we will all submit to the Lord and find our lane to run in, then essentially what we'll find out is that every need that's in the body of Christ will be met by each one of us working together as we all submit ourselves to the head. That's uh, Jesus himself. So in chapter 3, he goes on, um, and, and he essentially lays out leadership in the church. So there's a contrast from verse 8 through um, 15 in chapter 2, where he talks about men's and women's roles in the church, but then he gets more specific about the men's official roles as leaders. So he says in verse 1 of chapter 3, this is a faithful saying. And I'll give you a little bit of homework if you want to, you Bible students. Um, dig into the scripture and do a quick search on that phrase, this is a faithful saying. And I want you to figure out how many times that's in the New Testament. Because every time he says this is a faithful saying, he's saying this is something you can bank on. It's a guarantee. And so I want you to come back if you want to and find out how many times that's in the New Testament. He says, this is a faithful saying, if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. And so uh, what do you guys think of when you hear the word bishop? Uh, I think about the guy that's on Christmas Eve, he gets up, uh, it's always like midnight mass. We, uh, 
traditionally over the last 10 years, I've gone to church on Christmas Eve, and then I go home, and I flip on the TV, and you see mass on every channel, and then you got these people walking around, long white robes with a super tall hat, and they're cardinals, and then you got bishops, not the cardinals, not the St. Louis cardinals, but the cardinal who's got this big tall hat on, and so you end up picturing these very official people within the church that are, you know, if you've ever watched Monty Python, they talk like this. Uh, maybe I'm losing you with the references, but, but here we are with, he says, if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. So what does that, what does that word desire mean? I'm going to talk about that real quick, because desire can be a negative thing, no doubt. Uh, desires have destroyed marriages. Desires have destroyed uh, companies. Desires have destroyed families and, and individual people. Desires can get you in a lot of trouble. But in Psalm chapter 37, there's a couple of verses about desire. I'm going to turn there because desire is a God-given thing. Uh, but when it's guided by our flesh rather than the Holy Spirit, desire can get us into trouble. So in, in Psalm chapter 37, verse 4, and many of you have maybe seen this in decorations that we put up in our homes or someone you know has put up. It says there in verse 4, Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. So, But first and foremost, in verse 3, it says, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Then it says, Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Verse 5 says, Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. So he says, delight yourself in the Lord. So just a quick study on this set of verses. Basically, what he says is delight in God. He'll give you desires. This isn't saying if you delight yourself in the Lord, he'll give you whatever you desire, because some of our desires are not desires that line up with what God would have for us. If you're delighting yourself in, your, in the Lord, you're not going to desire a woman that's not your wife. You're going to desire the wife that he has given you. If you're delighting yourself in the Lord, you may not always like your job, but you will go to it faithfully trying to serve and be a light for him there because you know it's the job he's provided. And there's many more examples that I could give you, but if you are delighting in the Lord, your desire will be less and less for sin. Not because um, you are afraid of sin or not because you don't have fleshly desires, but because in the moment that you are tempted you will be convinced that the Lord has better for you and that if you do it, if no one else sees it, he will. So delight in him. He will give you desires. And then he says there, commit everything that you do to him and trust him. And what's funny is if you will delight in him, he'll give you desires. And then if you commit everything in your life to him, your, your family, your job, your home, um, your finances, all of these areas of our lives that we tend to kind of separate off, what you'll find out is that he will help you to do the things he gives you the desire to do. And so in 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, on the next slide there, he um, essentially says, if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. So the word bishop there can also be translated elder or overseer. It's a fancy word, presbytos, 
which might sound familiar if you think about a, a denomination called the Presbyterian Church. It wasn't necessarily used as a form of a word to make a denomination after, but what they're saying is they are a church led by the bishop or the elders, elder-led church. And so um, the other word that it can be translated to is pastor, which we think of in a church sense, but the word pastor actually means shepherd. And so um, we trust the shepherd, the good shepherd, described in Psalm chapter 23, and he says, if a man desires a position of a pastor, he desires a good work or an elder. And he says it is good. It's a good desire. But he also says it is work. It's not easy. So if a man desires this, it will be rewarding, but it will be work. And so he gives a list of qualifications in verse uh, 2 through 7. Verse 2, he says, A bishop must be blameless. The, the idea is above reproach. In other words, uh, nobody can get a hold of something from his life and use it against him. Now, people are always out there looking for faults in your life that they can get a hold of. But the idea is that there's someone that is pursuing and has a habit of being blameless. He desires a good work. Um, so it, um, a bishop must be blameless, the husband of one wife, uh, and the idea is a one-woman man. And there's a song, they should make a song about that. Um, temperate, someone is, who's not hot-headed. Um, so um, people are going to be against the pastor. They're going to get mad at them. They're going to say things about them. This can't be somebody that's going to fly off the handle every time someone accuses them of something. Um, someone who is sober-minded. Uh, someone who makes keeps a cool head in, in the, the time where there, there's a decision that needs to be made on the fly. Um, someone who is of good behavior. Um, that goes without saying. Hospitable. Uh, so uh, someone that is willing to uh, like people. So if you're a pastor, if, you, if God, you feel like God's called you to be a pastor or a leader in the church, and you don't like people, uh, you may not be a good fit. Um, because the idea is if you don't like people, that's what you're going to spend the majority of your time doing, interacting with people. Um, and the word there for hospitable is actually the word that's used to describe the Good Samaritan. If you'll remember with me, uh, Jesus spoke of this man called the Good Samaritan, and, and essentially there was this man that came around, along this road that was known for being dangerous, um, and he was essentially knocked down. Thieves stole his stuff, and they beat him nearly to death, and he was laying on the side of the road, looked like roadkill, and these Levites and priests walked by. The, the most godly men, supposedly in their culture, they walked by, and because they didn't want to defile themselves, they kept going. These were men of Israel. These were the called apart people of God, and they walked by, and because of their own personal preference of not wanting to get their hands dirty, they kept going. And Jesus speaks of this man called a Samaritan. And the Samaritan, ironically, the, the Jews looked at Samaritans as half-breeds. The Jews wouldn't even travel through Samaria in the time of Jesus. Jesus made them walk through Samaria to get somewhere because it was closer, but also because he wanted to meet with one of these Samaritan people. But in the story of the Good Samaritan, when they're walking through the Samaritan who was looked down upon by the Jewish people, he stopped. And he took care of this man. 
and he took him someplace at his own expense. He sacrificed. He stopped his schedule. He took him someplace, got him all bandaged up, left him at a, essentially an inn, and then he left enough money to take care of him. And he said, when I come back through, if this money's not enough, keep a tab for me for this man, and I will pay it to the full. And so hospitable is not just to care about the people you're related to, but to care about the people that will not be able to pay you back. Jesus said, everybody will do things good for people that can pay them back. But as my people, I want you to go out and I want you to sacrifice and love people that can't pay you back. And uh, so he, uh, he goes on. He says, hospitable and able to teach. Someone who is able to learn from the scriptures and teach them to others. Not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle and not quarrelsome and not covetous. Um, the word quarrelsome there um, in some translations says not a hitter. You know, I, I know a lot of guys that are pastors that are hitters. You know, um, they will have a word for you. But the idea is if you are going to be a leader in the church, um, you're not to be given to violence. And that's important because most of the time pastors get to have conversations with anybody. It's, uh, it can be a bit quarrelsome. It can, they got beef. Uh, they're angry. Uh, they're, they're hurting and hurt people hurt people. So to be willing to turn the other cheek as Jesus did. Um, but he says not given to wine. Um, as, as part of what we uh, believe here and the way that I lead, um, as a, an elder or a pastor in this church, um, there will be no drinking. And the reason for that, even though it seems like kind of stout, um, the reason for that is because in our culture, um, there are too many people that have been given over to drunkenness and they cannot control it. They're recovering alcoholics, recovering drug addicts, and it's just not worth stumbling somebody. I believe that when we get to heaven, the wine, there will be wine at the wedding feast of the Lamb, and at that point, I will partake. But until then, I will not, because I don't want to stumble somebody. Not because I don't have the, the freedom in Christ to do so, but as a pastor of the church, I don't want my freedom to give someone who has had a, a past problem license to sin. And so in our culture, and as part of this church, if someone's going to be an elder or a pastor, um, they will not be partaking in the alcohol. Uh, but he says, not violent and not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome and not covetous. Uh, the idea is they're not greedy for money. Or in, in the old King James, it says, uh, not desiring of filthy lucre. I like that better. Filthy lucre. Sounds like pirate's booty. You guys and the word booty. We have a friend that every time you say the word booty, she just giggles. It's a very godly, a very godly woman, but, uh, but it's just, it's hard not to. Um, but anyway, he says, uh, not greedy for money, and he, he says not covetous. In other words, not desiring someone else's stuff, um, and, and that can be a temptation. And the idea is, because here's the reality, when you guys give, uh, there's money, there's checks that we deposit in the bank, and there's cash. And the temptation for money is a strong temptation. And so if you have somebody that has a problem with coveting other people's stuff 
or greedy for money, um, there is an opportunity for the Lord to be blasphemed. Because um, in the book of 1 Samuel, uh, the sons of Samuel were actually uh, leaders in Israel. And when people would come to the temple, they would accept offerings from the people. Um, but what happened is these men were leading, and I put quotes in the air because they were not leading. They were leading in an ungodly way. They caused people to, um, <laughs> to hate bringing offerings to the Lord. As a matter of fact, at one point, they wouldn't give money. They would give meat. And that meat, a portion of it, when it came in, would go to the priests and the Levites so they had food to live off of. And so essentially they would boil the fat off and then the meat would be given to the sons or the, the Levites to have something to eat. And these were the sons of the priests. Well, they would not want the meat to be boiled. They would want all the fat on it. And I get it. You know, we, the fat is the best part of the meat. Um, it's where the flavor comes from. But they're... In, in their society, the thing to do was to get rid of the, the fat, and so they would boil it first. Well, the sons of Eli would, would essentially say, give us the meat before it's boiled, and they'd say, um, uh, you know what the law says, you're not supposed to have that, and they'd, they'd say, give it over here, and they would, they would pull it out of their hands, and they'd take a meat hook, and they'd put it in there, and they'd grab all that they wanted, and it caused the people to despise giving offerings to the Lord, and you guys, many of you have been touched by this. Um, especially if you went to a church where they would take up an offering and you'd be, they'd be living like fat cats and you'd be like, hey, I don't have much to give anyway and you're using the money that I do have to give and you're causing me to despise the work of the Lord. You're, 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 you're just begging for money and, and I don't have much to give in the first place and there you're using it for your own gain. And so um, the idea is um, like the TV preacher you know, send us in your, your seed faith gift, and then we'll send you an anointed cloth, and you'll find healing. Um, that comes out of greediness. Uh, many times, it's not even going to find healing. It's just a way to manipulate people to get more money. That is, frankly, one of the reasons that I feel that we're not going to take an offering. Uh, not because we cannot. The Bible states over and over again that an offering to the Lord is actually something He expects, but it is not something that He wants us to give compulsorily. He wants us to be free to give and to be able to give with a joyful heart. Here's what I'm going to give to the Lord and just be something we enjoy as an act of faith and worship. And so I don't ask for money. Um, and God has provided over and over and over again. This piece of property is not because I had a fundraiser. This piece of property is not because we begged people for money and passed the plate a second time. Um, th this piece of property was paid for, everything on it, by God just laying it on people's hearts to give. And I'm grateful because I don't like being asked for money, and I don't like to have to ask anybody for money. We just pray that God would provide all that we need, and if it's not there, we must not need it. You know, that's reality. And so I thank you all uh, for being faithful. Um, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? And so as we get through verse 5 there, we see that it's not just how he conducts himself out in public, but God cares about the man's character when nobody's looking but his own family. And you know as well as I do that the hardest place to live out your faith is among the people that know everything about you. It's hard. 
Um, but if a man is faithful in his house, it will be shown by the way that his children react to his um, leading and the way his wife reacts to his leading. So he, God cares about how ministers rule their homes. And it's actually a qualification of a leader to rule in his own home. Does that mean that all of his children, you know, think about pastor's kids. Like just mentioning the phrase, you think those are the most wild kids in all of creation. They go off, and I'm praying for my children because they have that tendency. They're going to be tempted. They're going to see the hypocrisy if there's any there between the way I am around church people and the way I am at home behind closed doors. And so um, God cares about our character, not just because of us, but because of those we are leading. You know, our children will do and love what we do and love. That's the reality. We cannot say, do as I say, not as I do. God does not make allowance for that. He cares about our character because he cares about our children's character. And we leave a legacy. My daughter will love what I love. My son loves what I love. You know what we did yesterday? We went for a Jeep ride because my kids love going on Jeep rides. And I'm very thankful for that because I love going on Jeep rides, especially when the water's up. If it's just rained and you don't know how to find me, we're driving past Shepherd Mountain because we want to go see the levee and all the water just coming off over the side. And we pulled off in that little turnaround area and there was two geese. You know what they had with them? Baby geese. Goslings. There was a whole bunch of them. They're yellow. I didn't know that. But you know what those goslings do? They follow their parents. And when they can't follow their parents, the parents come around back and they push them to go where they should. That's what a shepherd should do. Shepherds are not just pastors. Shepherds are parents. We have to shepherd our children. And if we don't, someone else will. And you know who it's going to be? It's going to be Wiz Khalifa. You ever seen a picture of that guy? You know what his life looks like? It's a train wreck. The, the, the reason that guy's not in jail is I don't know why. He probably has been. Or in my day, it was Tupac. People still profess him to be the greatest guy ever. I'm like, I, I don't know. Biggie Smalls probably had some beef with him. You know, there was probably a reason for that. My wife's like, where's this all coming from? <laughs> you don't know me. I know, you know, we, we had a men's Bible study one time, and this, this, this brother of mine, he, uh, he was actually the guy that brought me to church the first time, and he was talking about winning the hearts of our children and the way that we lead them. And he said, uh, who's leading your children? And he's challenging us as men to lead our homes in godliness. He said, if you are not there to lead your children, guess who will? And he, he hit the next button, and it was a picture of Wiz Khalifa. And everybody in there was like, oh my gosh, he goes... He goes, you laugh, he said, but this guy's already leading your children. He's spending night and day winning the hearts of your children. He is. Now, I say Wiz Khalifa, but you can think of anybody. Luke Bryan, he's going to lead your children. You know what he says? I believe that everybody's good and that heaven's worth the work. Uh, You can't work to get to heaven, Luke Bryan. He's lying. It's a good lie. It sounds good. But it's a lie from the pit of hell. And so it's a false gospel. And so we need to be fully aware of what is winning the hearts of our children. And so kind of a segue, but, or a rabbit trail that I've chased here. But, you know, I, I don't want you to think that this passage is just about pastors. 
about anybody that's a leader of anybody, and we all lead somebody. You know, we all have an effect on a certain realm of influence. And so he says there, if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Then he says in verse 6, not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside of the faith, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. And so, you know, he, he refers to Satan here. Uh, it, anybody who wants to be a leader in the church can be not, cannot be a new believer. Because if they are, here's the deal. Satan would love to get a hold of a young life of a man of God who is a leader in a church, who has people following him. All he's got to do is pick off the weak link. And if he picks off the weak link, then he gets them all. He can stumble them, and none of them will you know, want to even go to church anymore. It doesn't take much. And so um, there's some examples of people who, who have been called to lead and how God has called them to lead. Paul has already given us an example of himself in chapter 1, verse 12 through 17, where he says this of himself. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me as faithful putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. He says, here's another one, I'm giving it away. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. So an under-shepherd or a leader in the church has to recognize and be humbled by the fact that they were an insolent person. They were against God, not just not for him, but actually at war with him. And uh, another example is Peter. Peter was a broken man. He denied Christ three times, but then in John chapter 21, the Lord restored him, and he asked him three times. Just like he denied Christ three times, he restores him. He says, Peter, do you love me? He says, of course I love you. He says, then feed my sheep. And that's the job of any under-shepherd, to feed the sheep of God, to teach them the word of God. I read this morning um, in a uh, commentary on this passage by Warren Wearsby, what, God sa- what, what he said about this particular passage is he said, God does not add to the church through addition, but through nutrition. And we don't grow as a church by adding people. We grow as a church as we feed daily on the Word of God, and as we're nourished by it, He grows us. He multiplies us personally, and then as a result of that, He affects those around us. So in verse 8, He talks about deacons. Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not (laughs) double-tongued. Ironically, the snake has a forked tongue, right? Uh, the deceiver. Um, but he says, deacons must be reverent and not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. So he says, not double-tongued and not given to much wine and not greedy for money. A lot of the same things that was expected of the elder. But what is a deacon? I mean, culturally, if you've been raised in church at all, uh, many times the deacon is actually um, one of the leaders that tells everybody what to do. Um, they are the ones that tell the pastor what to do. But biblically speaking, I can't see that 
as um, what the role of the deacon is. The word diakonos in the Greek is the word deacon, which actually means servant. And so if that's the case, um, as a deacon, a servant, uh, what is the purpose of one? Well, in Acts chapter 6, verse 1, we see the first occurrence of the word deacon in the New Testament church. And what it says there in chapter 6, verse 1, is this says, In those days, this is after the beginning of the church there in Jerusalem, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. So the Hebrew, it was a church of Jews and Gentiles. And so the Hebrews, the Jewish people that were Christians, were complaining about these Greek Christians because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And so there's a war, a culture war going on. Hey, they're, they're treating the other group better than they're, they're treating us. And what it says there, it says that the 12 summoned the multitude of the disciples and said this. So these are the 12 apostles. It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. So as pastors, our main focus should be on studying and preparing to teach the word of God. That does not mean that pastors cannot serve tables. Uh, many times, especially in a small church, it's just, it's part of it. There's not enough people to do all the things that need to take place. But notice this, it, that he says it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Any pastor that is, like me, bivocational, and any pastor that's not bivocational, there's not enough time in the day, and there's not few enough needs where we can spend as much time as we should preparing. And so when they set up deacons, it was so that the pastor could spend more time in prayer for the church and more time preparing to teach the word. And he says there, um, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, who may appoint over this business but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So they chose seven men at the leading of um, the 12 apostles that would essentially relieve those who were teaching the word of God and leading the church to be able to pray and study. They were going to relieve them of some of the practical duties. So some of those practical duties in this case were taking meals to those that were not able to receive meals or make meals, widows. The widows had been widowed, and they didn't have any income, and so part of the ministry of the church was actually Meals on Wheels. And that day, they didn't have no Meals on Wheels. And frankly, my personal belief is that we shouldn't have to, as a government-subsidized thing, it should be the church feeding widows and orphans in their time of need. James said this is true and undefiled religion. But what he says here is that when these deacons, these servants, were able to do those things, Essentially, the pastor was able to continue studying the Word of God. And it's important that he's able to do that because in Ephesians chapter 4, one of the purposes of the church is listed there in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, where it says this, He himself, meaning Jesus, gave some to be apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors, teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, 
for the building up or the edifying of the body of Christ till we all come to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of teaching by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but instead, speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. Well, it's like the longest run-on sentence ever. But what he's saying is the, the purpose of the church is for the saints, that's all of us, to be equipped by the learning from the Word of God. That's why we spend the predominant part of our service being taught the Word of God so that we can grow out of understanding God, who He is, and who he has made us as new creations. And so um, that's the purpose of the church. Now the church goes out and does their mission, whatever you're called to, whoever he sent you to. Many of you may not feel like you're in full-time ministry, but if you go to a job, if you interact with people anywhere, you are a minister of the gospel. You're God's, you're Christ's representative here on earth. And so he speaks of deacons, servants, and he speaks of what qualifies a man to be a deacon, not a novice. He says, he says these must be reverent, not double-tongued. They've got to be truthful, not liars, not given to alcohol, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of faith with a pure conscience. Verse 10, but let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons. In other words, don't set a person in that position until you've watched their life to see the fruit of it. And so um, I'm thankful that God has raised up men within this church that I've been able to watch their lives, and we as elders have watched the lives of these men, and they have proven themselves to be faithful, and we're able to give ministry to them so that they can use their gifts. He says this, again, in the home, verse 11, likewise their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. And, and I think it's interesting that he lists the wives because as a deacon, whoever your wife is also represents you. And so speaks either well or unwell of you. And where it says they're not slanderers, you could put in the word uh, not gossips, not someone who's constantly talking about other people um, because it causes the enemies of the Lord and people within the church to essentially despise the Lord again. Um, for those who have served well as deacons, obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. And so I put up there for you a little picture of a man washing another man's feet. Now, we don't have foot washings here, okay? I don't believe that's a precept that's taught in Scripture for us to continue. Communion, baptism, and communion, uh, those are things that we do. We take the Lord's Supper. Um, but foot washing is something that's kind of in more traditional churches. But I, I just, I, I picked this because um, people will be able to tell you're a servant, not based on your title, but based on what they see in your life. And so many times uh, when I've picked deacons or when I was picked as a deacon in Parkland Chapel in Farmington, I wasn't picked because I was like, hey, I want to, I want to, I want a role. I want a name tag. I want to be, you know, I was picked because I was already serving. And every, everybody that's part of the leadership here was picked to take on that role and have that, 
title, but the title doesn't mean anything. These men were already doing the things that the role calls for. And so all we did was lay hands on them and pray for them and ask them to pray about being a part of that role and taking it on officially. So um, they're not covetous for titles or for men to notice, but they're just doing the work that God has already called them to do. And so, verse 14. Uh, yeah, I've kind of skipped some slides there. Sorry about that, Steve. Verse 14. These things I write to you, and I said this earlier, though I hope to come to you shortly. Paul writing to Timothy, he says, but if I am delayed, I write to you so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. And here's the reason it's so important which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. So God cares not so much about what we look like, but he cares about our character. And in this verse right here, these two verses, he says he wants him to know how he ought to conduct himself in the house of God. And then he says the house of God is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And so what's a pillar? We've seen them on old buildings. You ever seen some of these ruins? That's the Parthenon. Now, this was a, a temple for all these foreign gods. But the, my point is, when you see these ruins of these buildings, you won't see the roof. You won't always see the foundation. But many times you'll see the pillar. And the pillar tells us what? That there used to be a structure here. But what does the pillar do while the structure is built? It holds everything up and together. It's a symbol of strength, and it's a symbol of the existence of the building. And so the church of God is the pillar of the truth, and it's a ground for the faith. So a pillar is much like after the Israelites passed from Egypt, they passed the, through the Jordan River. God miraculously split the water, they came across on the ground, on the bed, and they came to the other side into the promised land that God gave them. And the first thing he told them to do while the water was still miraculously being held back so that they could get through it, is he said, I want you to take 12 rocks, 12 stones out of the bottom of the Jordan and stack them up on, the, on this side of the ground. Why? Because I want you to remember that it was God that got you here. And I want you to remember that when you came here, there were 12 tribes. It was a rock of remembrance. It was a, a monument. Monuments are good things until we forget what they were. But they're always set there to be a reminder of the reality of what used to be there. So God builds the church to represent him on earth. And the church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. It's the foundation. And the, those around us get their ideas about who God is and what he is like based on our character and lifestyle. So, last slide. The church reveals Jesus. Um, he says there in verse 16, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. The mystery is something that is hidden or was hidden and has been revealed. So he says, great is the mystery of godliness. And he he says here, God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in glory. And we testify of these truths. So let me ask you, does your life 
clearly reveal Jesus to those around you based on these things of character? Or does your life blur and distort the image of Jesus and leave people with a false representation of him? Many of us either continued going to church because of people that we saw and we wanted to be like them. Or many of us stepped out of church and said, you know what? They're all a bunch of hypocrites and I can't stand them. Based on how they conducted themselves, we either stayed with it or we left. You know, I have people in my past that I saw their lives and I was like, I'm already like them. What do I need to go to church for? They're no different than I am. They just have something to do on Sunday. Um, but that's not the point of church. The point of church is for us to get together and become more like Jesus together. Um, he is the standard. And so uh, in John chapter 10, as we close, John chapter 10, verse 22 through 30. Jesus was going to the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. It was like a, an entryway. And the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you truly are the Christ, or the word there is Mashiach in the Hebrew, uh, meaning the Messiah, if you're truly the Christ, the one that God sent to deliver us, then just tell us plainly. And Jesus said to them, I told you, and you do not believe. He'd already told them, I am he. Um, the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. In other words, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You know what the Father's like based on how I have lived. So what I want to point out from that is actually in verse... Sorry. Verse 25, Jesus had answered them and he said, I told you and you do not believe, but you can look at my works, essentially is what he says. The works of, that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. And what I want to point out this morning is that if we are his works, if our life is a fruit of his saving grace, who we are will bear witness of whose we are. And the reality is God's works, Jesus' works, we are becoming like him and he's doing the, the ministry and changing us and transforming us into the image of Christ, we will bear witness of him. I'm not saying that we will always go out and get on a soapbox and go, Jesus saves. But our works or our lives will be fruit. If you look at a, a tree, an apple tree, and it's growing in a field, you're like, I wonder what kind of tree that is. What do you look for to tell? You wait till spring, you watch what kind of fruit comes forth. Oh, it's an apple tree. Look, there's apples. And so uh, if we are truly Jesus' works, then our lives will be witnesses of who he is and whose we are. So let's pray. Father, um, there is not one man, there is not one woman who is qualified uh, apart from what Jesus did on the cross. 
to be any part of your church, to be any part of the called out assembly of believers that you've made us. So Father, I thank you for your grace and your mercy and your death and your burial and the resurrection that proves that our payment, the payment on behalf of us for the sins that we deserve to be punished for, that our payment was received and accepted because of what Jesus did. So Father, I thank you for this passage this morning. I pray that each one of our lives would be filled with character that clearly reveals Jesus to those around us, that reveals Jesus to each other, that our lives would not be those that confuse people that don't know you and cause them to think that God is just like any other one of the gods or any one of our imperfect fathers, Lord, but that they would see Jesus. They would see the exact representation of the Father and that they would be wooed by the Spirit to a relationship with our Savior. So Lord, as followers of Christ, help us not to have character that uh, draws people away from you, but help us to be submitted to the Holy Spirit and in doing so, that we would be pillars and grounds, foundations for the truth that would point people back to our Creator. Lord, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.